Our DMs Podcast, where we discuss old-school role-playing from the DMs perspective. Hello, this is GM Trigby, and this is the first podcast called Behind the Screen OSR DMs Podcast. Just a sort of DM roundtable where a bunch of us DMs get together, talk about the game, various aspects. So once again, my name is GM Trigvi, and I am here with... My name is Kel Ronan, and uh, I DM First Edition 3.5 and 5e. My name is Daedra. You can also call me Hell. I DM mostly 5th Edition. My name is Nathan the DM, and I play primarily 5th edition. And my name is Legitimate Mustard. I DM a little bit of 1st edition, and I've done some Pathfinder, and some 3.5, and some 5th edition. A little bit of everything. Yeah, I suppose I should say that I've been playing since before some of these other DMs were born. I'm clearly the oldest here. I started with AD&D back in the late 70s, early 80s. I've played D&D, GURPS, MURPS, Traveler, uh, Star Trek, RPG. Pretty much anything that was written in the 80s or 90s I probably played, so good stuff. All right, so our first segment for our podcast is a quick DM update. I'm going to go first. So I'm in the middle of a play test called KB1 Into the Badlands, and we had a dragon fight. Uh, and the party did not TPK, and they did lose a player, which was unfortunate, but they did end up killing an old black dragon. Now, dragons in second edition and later editions are a little more tough, but first edition dragons can be pretty brutal, especially their breath weapon. And I have to say I was a little concerned when the party decided to throw all their caution to the wind, basically just zerg the dragon and remarkably didn't get killed. It was a pretty epic fight. I really enjoyed it. It's the second time I've taken this group through a dragon fight. I think this one actually went better than the first ones, even though a player died. So it was a lot of fun. The acid was brutal, a lot of destroyed gear. I am liberal in my application of item saving throws. And that's my little update for this week. That happened last Sunday, and they're going to be distributing loot from the dragon's lair this Sunday. Daedra? I, I actually just just before this podcast finished listening to that your upload for that uh, episode. Very, very interesting. Well done, guys. <laughs> um, so my notable update was actually I did something that's a little bit controversial for some DMs, but went over pretty well. I actually did a dream sequence where I just went full cinematic and I told all my uh, players that were dreaming what happened, and I did it very creepypasta-esque where it was very creepy and the player i did did it well the players loved it and they said oh man it was so creepy it was it gave me chills i i had to do something really special for introducing the warlock's patron and it it fortunately ended up going really well that's a 5e thing right each warlock has to have a patron yes Mm -hmm. yep very cool okay next is up is going to be cal ronan all right, so uh, last weekend I actually DM'd for 
uh, a new group and we were doing our character introductions with everybody and as part of one of my characters or one of my players character introductions they decided to kill an npc in town in front of the mayor of the town who was sort of introducing them to the uh to the rest of the party you know as um you know basically like getting to meet and greet everybody so he decides to go up to one of the npcs who is kind of sitting next to the mayor and uh stabs her in the back right next to the mayor and uh yeah that that set off a whole chain of events that ended up uh the first character to be well not the first character to be introduced but the first character that that player played uh has already died yeah i would kill a party for that probably but i'm a really horrible dm did you end up having the whole town sort of rally against the group for that murder or what happened the group wasn't together yet so i couldn't have them all rally against the group they were kind of being pulled together by the mayor um from people who were applying for this job so guy basically shows up says hey yeah i'll join in for uh, going off and figuring out what this giant sinkhole is um by the way goodbye to your assistant and then gets slaughtered by the by the mayor and the town guard wow so what was yeah. that um and that player's uh alignment i'm curious uh neutral evil okay so they they the may have been, they may have been playing their their character a bit <laughs> yeah. it's what my character uh, would a do a bit <laughs> You play neutral evil, you're gonna get smote by someone. It's just how that plays out most of the time. I think we have to make alignment our next topic for next time. Uh, to talk about neutral evil, and alignment is a huge topic of debate on the forums and boards and over the years. So. We'd have oh, to like 100%. devote an entire show to that. Yeah, probably. All right, Nathan, you're up. Your experience this week? Oh dear. Uh, let's see. The, my most uh, recent game that I played, I actually had the rare distinction of being a player. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, playtesting a game that he's going to be running for GaryCon in a, in a month or so. Um, and so I had the unique distinction of playing my first thief in AD&D. Um, so I, I got to check for traps on all the doors and, and scout ahead for the whole party and be the expert in that. And just, it, it was it was an absolute delight. We wound up wandering into uh, uh, basically a dimension of hunger that had latched on to, to uh, this temple that held a sacred relic that uh, food for the villagers. Uh, and so we, we, we wandered in just trying to like help some kids out who were trying to do their like annual like coming of age ritual and wandered fully into the mouth of some horrible eldritch beast it was quite spectacular awesome so you were playing ad and d not 5e i was so i i have a a, a group that i play ad and d with often and on more off than on um i i tend to run uh 5e games but i've dabbled in a bunch of different editions as a player Awesome. Yeah, I think compared to 5e, Thieves and AD&D are relatively underpowered unless you play them as very opportunistic flankers, in which case you can do some some pretty 
brutal damage in combat with backstab and surprise and so forth. But uh, yeah, as far as their thief abilities are concerned, when you play an AD&D, you're pretty weak for the first five or six levels. Your, your abilities are pretty low, so but still fun to play. So I'm glad you had a good time. Oh, absolutely. Mustard? I have not been uh, DMing recently. Um, however, I, I have heard that I am likely to be um, running some uh, another game in the near future, uh, near-ish future. So I've started to develop a new a new game, um, and I'm basing it off of a book that I read. I don't know, maybe ten years ago, um, and it is a it's a steampunk uh, genre. Um, I'm going to use a yeah, one e two e kind of rules and um, low magic. I'm I'm very excited about it. I, the book was great. Um, there's a potential that um, some people that are in this group might actually be playing it. So I don't want to go too much into it, but um, I'm very excited about it. And yeah, I've been um, I've been looking at magic in a different way. I'm trying to imagine um, a world where um, magic, the spells that exist in in 1e, 2e, can exist in a world in a low magic world, and I'm trying to imagine the 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 logic behind how that could work. Um, so I'm going to have to rewrite a bunch of the spells. I may eliminate a few because they just they won't they wouldn't be logical in in the context. But um, it's it's really fun at this point, and I hope that it. Um, I hope that the players end up enjoying it as much as I've enjoyed doing the workup to this point. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. I, I assume you're going to invite some of us to play. So I, I, I don't want to spoilers, but yeah, we've been talking a little bit about it and putting a lot of work into that. It's interesting to me that you were looking at the magic system. I think it's important when you're doing a homebrew world to decide how magic works or even if there is magic. I know 5e and later systems kind of take magic to an extreme, but the original Vancey and magic system that Gary worked on was supposed to be rare, uh, sort of very uh, almost elusive. Not everybody did it. You spent you know a lot of stuffy hours in libraries studying books to even cast the most basic spell. It's intended to be incredibly difficult, at least in the first couple of editions, and then that all changed. Although, to be honest, I think... If you look at Gary's original crew, I think they all played magic use except for Sir Robillar. But anyway, regardless, um, I'm curious to know what you come up with. If you do a hyper-realistic or science-based magic, I would love the crap out of that myself. So, so pretty awesome. The thing about a sci- like I've I've been working on that, and it's, tough. it's yeah. yeah, like there have to be some some liberties taken, I think, um, or or the magic of magic kind of disappears. Um, so I have in the past used um, fantasy um, oh I don't know elements to create um, a source of magic so you can often have like you know magic is, is a divine gift or uh, magic is um, an energy that's sourced from some object um, those sorts of things make sense in in a logical world you can say Oh, the chain that makes magic work is, you know, ABC, right? Um, 
So I like to think about it that way. And if you need a, a you know, a, a, a fantasy element, I, I kind of am okay with putting that in there, in, even if it's in a logical, um, a more logical world, uh, because it is fantasy and it is make believe and it is fun. And so sometimes you got to just throw the lo- the completely logical part out and throw a little bit of that in so that you can have the the you know the neat stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think if you're thinking of a science-based magic or one grounded in science, give some thought to the fact that our planet, real planet Earth, has 21% oxygen. As a DM, your world could have 25%, and that radically changes the properties of certain things, and that could be seen as magic. Or maybe the percentage of oxygen and other elements in the atmosphere varies location to location or can be made to vary. So you could probably come up with some interesting stuff, but yep. Uh, yep. Uh, yeah, I just I'm don't like to, to I think that um, in a homebrew setting, um, one of the one of the downfalls of that is that um, you can you can you know it's very easy to use the the worlds that exist, right? Um, they they exist for a reason, so that as a setting for for adventures. But if you're trying to develop something from scratch. That can go. That that hole can get very deep very quickly, and I know of I know of many people who've been interested in DMing homebrew worlds who've gotten to that point where it's just kind of gone off the edge, and they never they never built enough of it to feel comfortable to actually do the game, and that's such a shame because the story doesn't ever get told, and you know. So that, that, that is the specific inspiration for one of my homebrew worlds uh, where I said, you know what, 200 years ago, the stars fell from the sky and many different worlds were all smashed together into one pure chaos realm. And so there's some semblance of order that has since been reestablished, but everyone claims that theirs was the original dimension and everyone else is an interloper. So depending on what location I choose to run a game in for whatever one shot or running game that I do, the rules can vary just so dramatically because it's just a totally separate dimension that's just like a football field away from a black hole that's just sort of humming in the distance. And just anything can happen. It's such a joyous place. I have a, like a gritty tooth fairy hunter who like treks across these, these lands. Uh, next to like just the the shortest uh, like troll halfling that you've ever seen, it's a very fun place. Any other thoughts on homebrew worlds? We're off on a tangent here, but I love it. So just curious as to Daedra or Kelronan, thoughts on homebrew stuff? Yeah, I think that homebrew worlds are are really where the creativity of playing D and D gets started. I uh, in my opinion, you can play a lot with the original worlds and the original um, game annex but uh really as soon as the dm starts making the world his own and letting the world letting the uh the players sort of gallivant around in it uh things get really interesting and and that's where all the great stories start you can start writing books about them and, and build things interestingly um the way that magic works in one being so different and the way that magic works in, say, third edition necessitated an entire story of how magic became the way it is with the uh, with the spell plague, I believe, um, affecting how you know 
how people were able to cast spells and entire classes of magic being lost and wild magic being born as a result. But um, really that that kind of uh, transition period now that you have between these uh, these periods of magic, you can make a whole world where people aren't sure how they're going to cast spells anymore. Make a you know make a campaign based off of that. So there's a lot to play with there. Deidre, your thoughts? I was just thinking it would be really cool to set a campaign during the spell uh, spell plague. I believe it was when magic was dying and uh, everything was going sideways. So should probably write that down. But yeah, I think the god of magic was killed, and that, that started it. Right, something to that effect. Yeah, the god of magic died. Yeah. So. I've done a fair amount of homebrew, and I'm really not afraid to play around with the lore of the established systems that are there, especially if I think I can tell a more interesting story with it. Um, But some advice I have heard from other storytellers about creating your own world is actually don't get wrapped up too much in the minutiae of making the world, because a big part of being a DM is the improv and there's absolutely nothing wrong with just building as you are playing with your players and you never know your player's going to give you some amazing idea and you're like yes that exists now that is absolutely a part of this world yeah I've experienced that firsthand with this group uh, quite a bit and it's been pretty awesome so yeah good, uh, good insight there let's jump to the next segment and That's going to be the Monster Manual, and this week we've chosen to talk about goblins. I'll kick this off first, but I'm not going to speak too much. I love goblins. They're not just an entry-level fodder creature for me. In numbers, they're a huge threat. They're the kind of creature that you can throw at a party level one and show some real risk. They're average to low intelligence, so they're not going to be as smart, perhaps, as say your average human, but they can still be clever and sly and have heroic leaders, which can make them even more of a threat. And then in original D&D, there's a little known rule that a fighter is able to make as many attacks as he or she has in levels per round against a creature with less than one hit die, and goblins are one minus one. So there's nothing better than a horde of goblins to showcase that level three fighter just being a total badass and being able to sweep and attack two or three of those creatures at once. So for me, I love them as as complex creatures and I'll even create sort of player character goblin NPCs, if you will. NPCs that have every capability or functionality of a player character based on what's in the monster manual because there are some chief goblins or bodyguards are a little more tough and uh, and they can be a real challenge for the party so curious as to what you all think of goblins and we're going to go with kel first on this one Kelrun? yeah so in in my opinion goblins are one of those creatures that you you kind of fall in love with to a certain extent because they're um they're low intelligence uh and they're tenaciousness effectively because they they basically go around attacking random things and uh just trying to attack uh small villages that are clearly better defended than they are capable of attacking makes them perfectly um 
perfect for players to fall in love with. And I think, um, I mean, that's been shown across D and D uh, as a whole over the over the different editions. But when you get into, say, a slightly derivative work like Pathfinder, um, I mean, completely original work like Pathfinder, uh, goblins are. Um, they're, they're player characters, effectively. You, you play as goblins, and uh, <laughs> they're basically these crazy fire-loving creatures. I love that take on them. Um, they, I hate, they are astounded by fire, and they love magic. And uh, they, I hate Pathfinder player character goblins. <laughs> I, they're, they're all crazy, knife-loving, crazy fire, insane. Anyway, but I hear you. Some players love that. Well, that's the point. I mean, just to get people into the game. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's just so overdone. But anyway, keep going. I'm sorry. It, it is really overdone. And I had a character who was a goblin because in, in third edition, goblins had bonuses to riding abilities. I had a goblin knight in third edition, third edition, three point five. That was just a munchkin because it, you know, they get bonus of like four to the riding skill or something like that. And as a knight, you get bonuses if you attack on a mount. So I had a goblin with a, I think it was a wolf mount, and uh, had to do challenges. So it was interesting. But monsters, as a monster, you can just have them um, as the entry-level monster, or you can have an entire army of them, of thousands of them, um, bearing down on a village or a, a city as um, as a uh, really major fighting force that you know is going to take a lot of work to work around. Now, Deidre, having probably you're... by hobgoblins, but... Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you there. Uh, Deidre, your take on goblins? So I've actually had more experience with them as player races than I have as actual monsters because they are so popular for players to play as, especially once you get out of like the oh out of the comfort zone of like I, I want to play a human or an elf or something, then it's usually into something crazy like okay I want a warforged or a goblin or something like that something very drastically different. So my experience has actually mostly been with them as just absolutely wild chaotic player characters. So I actually mostly have just seen as monsters i've mostly just seen them as used as fodder really unfortunately not very creative that's interesting because in AD&D, goblins are lawful evil they're incredibly organized they pretty much align behind the strongest uh, most you know, manipulative leader type and they tend to be they tend to be a threat because of their organization to some degree. And they're not super intelligent, but they aren't the chaotic, sort of crazy, insane things that later editions make them out to be. And a lot of the the weaker humanoids, like kobolds, are also lawful evil. They tend to, to have that alignment specifically because they can only really survive if they work as a unit, they work as a group, they they move, you know. They, they ally themselves to a to a strong leader and then have rules in which they, they operate, right? That's the kind of idea of a lawful evil type culture. But interesting that 
they're chaotic player characters in 5e. I never thought about that. But. I well, I don't. Th- it's not like it's really a hard alignment. That's just mostly how I've seen them get played, and I think it's because you're as player characters it's usually the goblins who have broken off from their packs and are trying to join civilized society and be heroes or thieves or do something uh not very gobliny is probably where that comes in and i think the player characters just want to play something wild too (laughs) yeah since this is an osr podcast just to think about what that would translate to in AD&D, they'd probably be limited to level 4 as fighters and maybe, I don't know, level 6 or 7 as a thief. Goblins wouldn't be able to advance much beyond that because there were hard level limits for non-humans. So, you know, a goblin wouldn't be an attractive player character race just because of those level limits and how the old school game would limit uh, different different races. But it's interesting. Uh, Certainly the new system, I think, or the later versions is a little more inclusive for those people who want to play something a little more fantastical. There's a real human bias for the first version. The idea being that if you played an elf or you know, a dwarf, that was a rare thing. In fact, in original D&D, before Unearthed Arcana came out in the 80s, you couldn't be an elf or a dwarf or a halfling cleric. I think actually halflings don't have clerics, but they were only available as an NPC class. So you were limited to like fighter or magic user thief so yeah anyway like, could you uh, go ahead oh could half elves be uh clerics and first edition? half elves i think were allowed to be clerics i have to look it up but i think yes they were um and certainly with unearthed arcana they removed that rule but the original players handbook limited demi-human races pretty severely and i think like an elf could only go to level five or six fighter a halfling was level three or four i have to look it up but it's pretty low all things considered Thief was almost always unlimited, but anyway, uh, we're off on a tangent again like we tend to do, but that's fine. Uh, Nathan, your thoughts on goblins as a monster race? I love goblins. Like, they're so versatile. Like, they can cover so many different bases in, like, what you want them to fulfill in the narrative. Uh, Like, they can be, they can be that fodder. They can also be, uh, uh, as we said, just that massive army. They can... I, especially in fifth edition, they there's a, a lot of pushback against the alignment system, um, and so goblins are able to fulfill a lot more roles. And I think part of the reason that they're so popular is because everyone sees them super early on, and anyone who has ever tried to interrogate a goblin or has stealthed near goblins and listened to two goblins talking each other talking to each other on watch, like I've just been. A, immediately like oh they're so cute listen to their little scraggly voices um and like this goblin is too adorable to kill he's our new pet now um but i i personally in my games love uh taking goblins i have this philosophy with goblins that uh goblin engineers can make anything work once like (laughs) it will fall apart immediately if anyone tries to pick it up and like use it a second time or in the way that it was supposed to but like it's they're so clever they can make anything work a single time uh i have a whole city that i've made where there's a, a specific uh district in there called goblin town um which is just like the stacks of of refuse that have been somehow assembled into one big shamble of a neighborhood 
uh, that like a lot of like the kobold and goblin races sort of live in and among, and there's their they have their own politics, and so like you, it's it's a very much, much sort of a, a you don't go into Chinatown uh, uh, mentality of like I I am, am waiting for the moment that my players need to chase some sort of thief through Goblin Town and just all the chaos that. Uh, a full-size person trying to go through those streets would cause. Um, but yeah, goblins are, they're so much fun, and I've had so many players just like, be like, yeah, this goblin who's actively trying to stab me is my new best friend. I won't hurt them. They can barely hurt me. So uh, he's, we're, he's my, I've named him now. So now this is Dan. He's, he's my minion, uh, and he is biting my leg, but it's fine. You know, it's funny that you described two goblins talking on watch as cute. In, and because it's an OSAR podcast, I'm going to dive back into the original rules for D&D. And I want to be clear, we have a rule of our own here in the Behind the Screens podcast. We don't edition bash, right? All editions are great. If you're into the hobby, I don't care if you're playing D&D Basic, Advanced, 5e, 6, which is coming out in the end of the year. Uh, we don't bash at all. But in original D&D, it was written in the 70s and in the 80s they double down on racial hatred this idea of bigotry or just hating another race and all dwarves i think it's just dwarves but it might be gnomes as well they get plus one to hit all goblins and some other races too i think because they hate them just so much and that's built into every single dwarf in the game so uh, goblins were absolutely hated i don't know if you guys knew that or not but that's uh that's all throughout the original system. So, yeah. All right. Well, and the, that and the kobolds actually belongs to that and kobolds actually belong to a um, sort of whole idea of mining spirits, right? That caused miners problems and killed miners in caves. So that's yeah, I think gnomes hate kobolds and dwarves hate goblins. If I have to, I have to look it up because it's been a while. But I'm pretty that's... sure all dwarves get plus one to kill goblins. Yeah, gnomes so. gnomes get plus one to co- kobolds, I think. But I'd have to look yep. it up. Yeah, something like that. So there's racial hatred built into the races, and they're really they're not races; they're really species, right? But anyway, regardless, they're called races. So yeah, interesting feedback or interesting insight. Um, I think 5e has done a better job of being a little more i don't want to say pc culture but a little more inclusive and i i don't like the idea personally of playing like a turtle or a rabbit they're adding like a rabbit to class or race rather i i'm a traditionalist because i play first edition but if people are enjoying it hey more power to them so yeah, yeah play a goblin make them cute I'm, I'm okay with that my first edition dwarf will want to bash your head in but that's fine no big deal yeah, um, I like to think of it kind of like this, like when you think about like having extra uh, races or species, like imagine if in the real world there was only like six or seven like cultures or ethnicities, that would be so boring. So I'm I'm definitely in the camp of let's make all of the races and all of the uh, cultures. That's just way more interesting. Yeah, if you want to see just how ingrained racial hatred was in first edition, page 18 of the Player's Handbook, there's a racial preferences table. Pretty much everyone hates half-orcs, except other half-orcs. So, yeah, it's a thing. But anyway, um, 
legitimate mustard, your take on goblins before we move to the next section. So if you go in and you read the monster manual about that, um, the section on goblins, it's really interesting to see kind of the heritage of the game in there. You can see the levels of organization that, that goblins have, the hierarchies that they, that they exist under. And, and if you kind of read back into the history of the game and where it came from, you kind of see that, you know, that, that larger um, simulation of, of huge battles, you can see that organization in the, the way that goblins are written up. Now, as a DM, it can be really challenging to, to manage, you know, it's, it's hard to manage 30 NPCs. It's really hard to manage 400 or, you know, NPCs. Um, but it, it's in there. Like there's there's organizational systems in there, um, but it is very very difficult to do that. However, when you do, or if you're if you're a skilled enough DM to do that and to do it well, um, you can take a very a very basic enemy, you know, a goblin, a, a low level, you know, first first level opponent kind of thing, um, and you can turn them into a threat to a higher level character just by you know, organization and and numbers, and that's super cool. But it does require a different level of organization on the DM's part and a different level of um, strategic thinking that not every DM is capable of, and those that are may or may not be organized enough to be able to do that. It's really cool when you see it done, um, just because it's like it's overwhelming and it's and it's stressful and it it creates this um like this the there's a oh i don't know i can't even explain what it is but as as you're playing against that if you're a player and you see these you know waves of organized enemies like so many of them that you you can't comprehend the numbers it's stressful and it and it and it really pulls you into the game um and you know you you really want to win because the consequences are so dire. Because um, you get involved and you get you get invested in your character, and that's super cool. Yeah, I remember in the Danger Darkwood campaign, there was an ambush with goblins. It was the first real big fight. And I think you guys were fighting thirty-six, and six were war riders, and that was a lot to maintain. And then later on, when you went into that tomb, there were. I think only 25 goblins down there. But of course you alerted every single one and you had to fight them all at once. It was a lot to do, but it was really fun for me as a DM because I treat goblins under leadership as being pretty organized. So yeah, I, I see what you're saying and, and definitely all throughout first edition, you can really sense the roots of that game from tabletop, you know, wargaming. It's just, it's all through the whole system. Uh, and. It's both good and bad. Um, sometimes it kills role-playing. Other times it's an incredibly fun tactical game, and I think it's great. So I think you've picked up on something there. It's very true. Very true. Okay, any final comments on goblins? We're going to move to treasure type as our next section. All right, everyone's shaking their head. All right, so I picked this one because I used this treasure uh, piece because I used it in a campaign, and it was... An unfortunate choice on my part because 
the campaign was for a birthday girl. She ended up getting Miss Wand and it just made everything a mess. So the wand is a wand of wonder. So like the deck of many things prior to the spell plague and chaos magic and all that stuff, there were original AD&D items that would have a random effect when they were used. So for example, the wand of wonder can fire a fireball and blow something up, or it can fire a stream of a thousand butterflies. It is completely random. There's a table that you can use, and most DMs will actually make their own tables. There are some dragon magazines that have some absolutely crazy, insane tables for the Wand of Wonder. Uh, and I personally like things like... A, there's, there's items like the Wand of Wonder or the Robe of Useful Items, Deck of Many Things. As a DM, I'm not too keen on because they introduce some randomness, and that can be almost a narrative breaker if you're not careful. So I tend not to use them, but if they come up as random loot, and I use random loot, I have been known to embrace them. Legitimate Musters were nodding his head because he got a robe of many things in one of my campaigns and almost broke uh, the campaign with it. But regardless, the Wand of Wonder, Chaos Wand, you use it as a random thing. Your thoughts, Kel Ronan? Yeah, I... I really don't like this item because if you somebody if somebody picks it up, you know it's not so it's it's a really weird item. So if somebody picks it up and the first thing that they roll is a seventy to seventy nine, and they're not a magic user, um, they're going to think that it's a you know a wand of fireball, and uh, think that the next big bad that they that they're going to save it, they're going to try to use it on the next big bad. And the next thing they do is fire a thousand bloody butterflies at this dragon who's then just going to spray them with acid. Yep. That's the wand. And, and then they're pissed at you because they thought there was a wand of fireballs. Unless they can really pull off some sort of charisma check there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love you, Dragon. Here are some butterflies. Here's the thing. There's an Identify spell in first edition for this problem. No one should be using a wand or a ring or any item without identifying it first. That's the thing. There's even a section in the DM guide on how to sip a potion and tell what it is or examine magic items. This was a real part of the game originally. Getting a magic item was a cool but also terrifying thing because you could put it on and it could be cursed. Um, and there were a lot of cursed items in first edition. So anyway, so Karona, yeah. you hate it. You like to use them? I, no, I mean, I can see, I can see having a use for this, especially if you're having, if you're putting your um, your players in a dungeon where they're trying to get loot and they're trying to find different things, and uh, they have to choose different, you know, if they have to choose between a set of wands or they have to choose what they carry out of there, and um, you know they have to leave something behind uh it can be a really interesting tool it could even be interesting if a player identifies this wand and then tries to pawn it off on you know either another player or an npc and makes an entire it, it could be an entire storyline it could be a tool uh to say hey this npc has been following you around because he's been gypped into buying this crappy wand that you thought was you know great but he <laughs> he uh, shrunk somebody with instead of, uh, or he shrunk himself with instead of uh, killing somebody. Right. 
All right, prediction here, because 5e tends to be more um, fantastical and embraces magic a little more, I suspect the 5e DMs are going to like this item, but prove me wrong. Uh, we're going to talk to Daedra next. Your thoughts on the Wand of Wonder? Okay, so my first, first upon reading it, seeing that it does a random magical spell, warning bells went off at first, because I was, it was immediately brought back to wild <laughs> magic and the absolute derailment of any story that could potentially happen if someone opens up a rift to another plane of existence casually, you know. <laughs> However, upon actually looking at the uh, table, at least the 5e table, I couldn't find the AD&D table, uh, it's actually pretty tame. Uh, that being said, it looks like it'd be a ridiculous amount of fun but not particularly useful. So if you've got players who just want to like do something wacky and aren't like being like super power gamery about it or want to take risks, then they'd probably like it quite a bit. Have you used it in your campaigns? I have not yet. I will have to consider it though. <laughs> Interesting. All right, Nathan. I have not used the Wand of Wonders in one of my campaigns, but I, I, I have read through it before. Um, I In my games, I tend to prefer uh, very simple, straightforward items that have bizarre uses, like a, a, a staff of many sizes, which is a just a la Sun Wukong. It's like a 40-foot tall stone pillar that you can make any size that you want at any given time. Um, and like th things that have... A, a creative purpose but a simple structure um whereas the wand of wonders is like the opposite uh it is it is a very complex thing that you don't it's hard to use creatively because you don't know what's going to happen with it um right. though i a similar to uh wild magic sorcerers like it does add a level of chaos to the game that if you contextualize it well can lead to a ton of fun and yeah i reading through the table it's it's a perfectly fine item like it's worst case scenario you accidentally turn yourself into stone but the odds of you doing that are quite low um it's nothing in here is game breaking it's not like the the deck of many things where it's like well now i need to rewrite the campaign um right it's 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 much more just like Oh, this is... Uh, I, I would love to see the Wand of Wonders used in a low magic setting. They're like, you have a wand, but the only wand that you have access to, the only real like magical item that you have, is wildly unpredictable. And it can do anything. It could turn your opponent into stone. It could make a rhinoceros appear on the battlefield. You don't really know. <laughs> um, so every time you use it, it's going to be a bit of an event. Um, and I, I would love to see that in a low magic campaign where those events are more uh, uh, notable. Uh, whereas in in sort of a standard 5e game, it's it's just a random spell that you cast that probably benefits you. Maybe it doesn't, but odds are pretty good that you'll be okay. Uh, which is fine for those who, who enjoy a, a, a little bit of chaos, but uh, it's just hard to plan with. Yeah, the delusion effect is probably one of the most potentially game-breaking because you could have a player rely on the wand 
uh, and everybody else sees nothing, but they believe it actually did something. So that was quite confusing I for one, one of my players. I know, but it was really confusing for one of my players recently. So, all right, Legitimate Mustard, your thoughts on the Wand of Wonder? Okay, so one of the realities of my experience as a as a DM is that I have, and I've been thinking back, trying to trying to remember a situation where this wasn't the case. But I have always had a player in my campaigns who has more experience with the game than I do. That has always been a truth for me. And so one of the things that I have found is that it's really, really hard to avoid metagaming for everybody. I mean, once you have enough experience, you start to recognize things. Oh, that's this. That's, you know, whatever it is. And, And you play to those even when you're trying not to. Um, it's just that's just what happens. So I don't like to use I don't like to use things as they come, you know, as at, right out of the box, right? I like to try to to change things a little bit. So I have used the wand of wonder in a campaign, um, and I I gave it to the big bad evil guy, um, and uh, it was found in a school um, when. He was quite young. He did not very well understand it um, and spent decades kind of learning about it. He then integrated it into a machine um, and used some minions to operate the machine from a distance because it was so dangerous. And it was world-breaking. It would... It, in in the in the game that I that I used it in, it was so, supposed to be kind of uh, analogous to a nuclear weapon, and and it would destroy the world if it were used uh, in general. <laughs> used enough, it would just it would it would destroy the world, and the players realized that, and they they did destroy they did destroy that device. Um, what they didn't recognize was that the big bad evil guy had duplicated it, and um, there were three of those devices, um, and it created a, um, you know, it was a fun storyline. And my most experienced player in that game recognized what the de- what the, the wand was inside the device, and could not understand its function because it didn't conform to the way that he understood that that object was supposed to work in D and D. And it worked well because of that, because it wasn't by the book. Yeah, it's nice to punish someone like that through misinformation from their perspective because of metagaming. I have no problem as a DM doing that. In fact, I'll I'll even change up creatures or whatever if someone is a little too familiar with dragons or demons or whatever, just because you need to give them a surprise, right? And and player knowledge is often different than than PC knowledge and I hear what you're saying, although a want of wonder is random enough that you could simply just mix up the existing table and that would almost be enough to throw, you know, someone from metagaming. But if you want additional versions of the Wand of Wonder, Dragon Magazine number 147, you can find it online. They have three additional versions with additional effects, so maybe it's four. Uh, page 38, I think. So they have some additional stuff in there. It's... um. It's a pretty popular item. There's a lot of people who love this stuff because of the chaotic nature of it, but I do like that you uh, you mix it up for your campaign. Although a nuclear weapon is a little... Well, hey, I'm not going to judge. Whatever. I... 
yep. there had to be a there had to be a uh, a hook, and that's a hook. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big hook. A wand that fires nukes sometimes, right? Maybe you don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. Any last comments on the wand of wonder before we go to the next section? All right. So our next section is going to be called Rules Lawyer, because there are always those players who want to do something by the book or interpret the rules a certain way. This week, we've decided to talk about surprise. In first edition, if you get surprise, it's amazing. Effectively, without going into too many details, we won't get into the technical aspect of surprise, but it allows you to take an action when your opponent cannot. Elves have a really good chance of halflings of getting surprised. So do rangers. And if an assassin gets a surprise, or gets surprised rather, the original version has the ability for an assassin to one-shot kill any player character or potentially monster, depending on interpretation of the rules, within a certain level range, even up to a couple levels higher. The assassination tables give them a reasonable chance of killing someone with a single hit several levels higher so getting surprised is a major major big deal especially for example if your entire party gets a surprise facing off against an opposing player character or npc party that could give all of your casters your fighters um, one or two segments six second segments of actions before they can the enemy can do anything so it's a pretty big deal as a game mechanic in first edition. Curious as to your thoughts. I make liberal use of this. I'm constantly rolling for surprise through the old rules for both the players, NPCs. Uh, bugbears, for example, have a very, very good chance of getting surprised. Many a ranger in the forest has been killed in my campaigns by bugbears. So first up for this section, I'm going to ask... Uh, Ronan, your thoughts on the mechanic of surprise in first edition AD&D and then how it's used in other editions as well. Well, I, I won't be able to comment too much on any other editions. Uh, I haven't had very many people actually play assassins in many of my campaigns. Most of the time, uh, the campaigns that I've played in, or uh, ran rather, uh, were fairly straightforward uh, slogs through armies and such. Uh, with a fairly straightforward idea of, hey, there's this thing led to one other thing. But in your, uh, in, in one campaign that I'm playing in, one of my characters or one of my players has a character who gets surprised all the time, pretty much every single time they attack uh, or run into an enemy, and it is impossible to throw much at them that they can't handle. Uh, pretty much right away. I had uh, I had a bunch of goblins and some trees, and he had two rounds of surprise. Or no, it was I think it was three rounds of surprise, and he could have taken out um, he, he could have had taken out two goblins and alerted the party. Three segments, right? It's not a full three combat seconds. round, not a full minute, yeah. just eighteen seconds of surprise, effectively. So, yeah. he, he could have taken out the. Uh, goblins on the trees that he was aware of pretty much immediately and alerted the party to them. Um, but uh, it, it, it's it's quite powerful if you have a min-maxer who 
uh, who's got basically maximized their surprise effectiveness. Yeah, I'll admit to being a bit of a munchkin in your campaign. At least my elven ranger, um, who has you know both the elven talent and the ranger talent. But um, but then again, you know the enemies can do the same thing to some degree as well. So you can, as a DM, use that against us. And not everybody in the party is going to be as capable of surprise as say an elf in non-metal armor. And there are some constraints around that too. So, so you, do you like the rule? Do you think it's overpowered in first edition? I think it's a little overpowered, but I certainly exploit it as a player. <laughs> it's a little bit overpowered. Uh, I can imagine a person who's uh, been a ranger, um, who then, you know, forsakes their ranger uh, process or ranger class bonus benefits, and uh, turns into an assassin, and. Uh, decides to or, and is already an elf or a half elf so or an elf rather so they get surprise on so many rounds and just or so many opportunities and just slaughter as enemies yeah i wouldn't allow that as a dm i, I would say that because <laughs> it does say in the rules if you if you lose your ranger status if you go if you lose your alignment and go evil you lose all your ranger abilities and you're a fighter with an eight die hit dice right so you're a weakened fighter does that, that make sense logically though i mean really it doesn't it doesn't but if you don't if you don't embrace that rule i don't know now that you're saying that as a dm i'd probably come up with some middle ground ruling but because if you See, had that's where power, i would be with because you came yeah, I know, I know. But we're, we're way off on a tangent now. That could be maybe our next thing. You know, if you lose your class, what does that really mean? But um, yeah, I, I think surprise is overpowered, although it does make sense. If you, in real life, if you if you sort of get surprised on someone, if they don't know you're there and you have a chance to act, you're probably killing them before they can do anything. Every single horror movie shows this to us, right? And certainly, if you go into a in, in real combat and you you go into you burst into a room and you're armed and ready to go and you know they're in there with a beer in their hand watching TV, they're probably not fighting back before you can put them down. So, has anyone seen Boondock Saints? If anybody here has seen Boondock Saints, the part where they drop into the room on ropes is a perfect example of what Surprise does in first edition. So, that, yeah. All right, Daedra, your thoughts on Surprise in first edition or other editions? So I haven't seen too much of Surprise around in uh, AD&D or first edition. So mostly I have experience with it as a player in Pathfinder. And I've used it a couple times in fifth edition. I actually haven't been using the 5th edition rules as written where it's a status that's inflicted on people. I've Very few the, people do. Yeah, I, I've kept the surprise round. I just feel like it's more intuitive and straightforward and this is your round set aside for the people who are part of the surprise round. That just makes so much, so much easier. Okay. And in fifth edition, really quick, how does that work? There's a there's a specific round if you gain surprise, you have like a, an additional bonus action, or how does it work? No. So if if I may, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, you're next. You're next, Nathan. So go ahead. Yeah, please. Sure. So how a surprise works in in five e is 
Uh, if either side of a conflict is not expecting attack, I mean, you would roll like stealth versus passive perception or any, something, anything along these lines. Um, and then surprise is a status uh, that you have that says you you can't take actions or reactions. Um, you're basically just sort of stunned for the first bit. But then as soon as your turn rolls around, you spend your turn removing that status. So if you roll really well in initiative, like at the at the very start of the fight, you could immediately no longer be surprised. You're the first one to like go. You lose your first turn and everyone else gets to smack you around a little bit, but it otherwise barely affects you. Um, so it, it can be a bit of a headache. 5e does a lot of things very well in my opinion one thing that it it doesn't do uh in my personal opinion is it can it can make your players feel like they're in danger but you need as a dm to work for that a little bit harder uh than you do in in earlier editions um and like the action economy in 5e so often tends to favor the the players um, and unless you're you're intentionally trying to balance those scales out, your players will win most fights that are, are leveled for them. Um, so surprise can be a good way for your players to feel awesome as they sort of like step in and just remove all threats from the battlefield before anyone gets a chance to blink. Um, or like conversely, it might be a chance for the bad guys to finally get the upper hand, but because it's uh, just a status and it's not like a full round and people who have like reaction abilities will still be able to do things like that um and you're it's not so what i've seen of for myself and for a lot of other uh 5e dms is they'll instead use that full like just round of surprise where only the people who are surprising uh get to act during that time but it's it's one of those gotcha questions of the little minutiae of 5e it's like Oh, no one does this correctly, so no one knows what the actual rule is. But secretly, it's a status. That's interesting. In first edition, it's basically you taking action, while the other, while your enemy just stands there and does nothing. So if it's a fast spell, if it's an arrow, if it's a quick attack, you're doing that, and they're basically standing there. They're not dodging. They're not resisting. Oh, they can still passively resist, I suppose, but. Um, so it's not quite as bad as that, but it's not like you've described where you still get to roll initiative. This is before initiative, so it's absolutely brutal. Um, it's also the only way an assassin can use their assassination skill as well. You have to have surprise or you can't actually assassinate. So That's fair. There actually is that in, in 5e as well. There is the uh, rogue archetype of assassin um, who, if they manage to attack someone who is who has the surprise status like they they act before them in the initiative order and they manage to surprise them they score an automatic critical hit which <laughs> if you're if you know how a sneak attack works in 5e you roll just an ungodly number of d6s twice uh and you you are likely to to one shot anything that you could reasonably kill uh, uh if you manage to, to pull that one off yeah, I'm looking for the assassination table on my DM screen here. I don't, it's not on here, but it, it's on my other one. 
Um, I'm pretty sure that a level one has a 50% chance to kill a level one, or it might be even higher than that. I haven't looked yeah, at it's level 50%. one. Yeah, it's, it's either 50 or 70% for any uh, level one assassin to kill any other level one. And that line pretty much continues throughout its evolution. Um, now, you, you assassins can be a level, level, level up to a certain level, and that's yep. part of the limitations on it. But, yeah. Yeah, a 12 level assassin kill it. Yeah, it, it, it is, but I, I love it. I think it, it adds, like you say, Nathan, uh, a certain degree of risk. You know that you know if you get surprised, it's probably uh, a death of a character, especially if there's an assassin coming at you. All right, we're, we're a little bit over time here, so really quick. Um, well, actually, take your time, Mustard. Your thoughts on surprise in first edition and then once the games that you've DM'd for 5e and otherwise. So I think that it's really... I think it's really important in first edition to think about um, to think about rounds and initiative and the sequence that things happen. Those things, um, at least in my experience, tend to tend to be more important to um, to the game in the earlier editions. Whereas um, we tend to kind of gloss over that in the later editions. Um, you know, you cast a spell okay, the spell goes off, right? Um, in first edition, you cast a spell and it takes a set amount of time, and that's defined in um, in, in the, the documents. So I think that um, because of that limitation, which is a, a, a an element of realism that I like, I think that that makes surprise very, very, very powerful in um, in first edition. And because of that, I really like it. However, I don't like to, to to deal with it as a DM because it's one more thing that I've got to I've got to think about when I'm thinking about however many NPCs and um, and thinking about my story that I'm trying to tell and um, trying to maintain engagement from the players and uh, you know a hundred other small things that are not very big but cumulatively are are big and important and make the, the game enjoyable for everyone. So there are actually a number of things that I probably um, don't pay attention to in in the game um, that I could. And surprise is one of those things where unless it's pretty obvious that you know that that's a thing, I'm probably gonna you know kind of gloss over it because it's just one more thing and I'm I'm trying to tell a story. I'm warning you now, I'm going to make a ranger in your new campaign, and I am going to abuse the crap out of surprise as much as I possibly can. I'll just ignore it. But, uh, <laughs> he will do it. I'm just telling He will do it. <laughs> I will like say this. Waterfall I, moment. <laughs> it, it is true. Um, it, it is nice to know the rules and be able to exploit them. I try not to munchkin too much, but... I will say this. I hear what you're saying, Mustard, when you say about all the different things to be thinking about as a DM. I feel the same way about creature and NPC morale. You know, once you've killed half the goblins, the other half are probably going to run. And, you know, I'm constantly making secret morale checks. It's just, it can be really burdensome. So I'll admit this. Sometimes I just say to myself, you know what, this is a heroic fight. And they're all going to fight to the death until the last one. So I'll just be a lazy dm and ignore some rules there myself but i think that, all right so go ahead i think that part of it is my inexperience i think that with with more time behind the screen i you know 
you're able to to hold more things. You're able to um, you can you can add more depth to the game with that experience. And the reality is, I don't have that much. Um, so you know, with time, you know, I, I'll probably add more of those those things in, and it'll add more depth to the game. But but I have a limited amount of experience, and so that's just I have to pick the things that I that I can use and and make the the most of of those. I don't know. I think you're selling yourself short. I've DM'd a lot more than I've played over the years, and I still cut corners whenever I can. There's a lot to do, especially with 1E. Um, there's a lot of optional rules. There are whole chapters on flight classes and how quick something can turn when you're doing aerial combat. I haven't even bothered to read that enough times to have it memorized. So, cause and I don't even... think that we're going to get into rules lawyer over it. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. All right, so uh, we're kind of at time, everyone. So last thoughts on Surprise before we go to our final section. No? Shaking our heads? All right. So just um, just last comments before we close this out. I think it's been a lot of fun. I've just got given me things to think about. I think based on our last conversation, I am going to try and find more ways for creatures and monsters to use Surprise because it's overpowered i think i need to level the scales a little bit so i am going to be an evil dm and i am going to use surprise against my pcs with a gr- much greater vigor and rig- rigor rather uh, than i have in the past so uh, that's my takeaway from all this i think the rule is good even if it's overpowered and i can use it against the pcs and that'll be fun your thoughts cal ronan close us out I clearly need to do uh, throw more evil at you, uh, at you guys and my players. Um, clearly, killing one character in uh, this week wasn't enough. I need to throw more at you guys, and really, I need to use the uh, organization of no- of uh, goblins to uh, to impress upon you how, what what kind of oh sorry impress on my players what kind of enemies they're up against. So. Uh, I think I'm going to use goblins oh. a little bit more effectively. Sorry, Carwonen. That, that's uh, that's interesting. Let us know uh, maybe next time how you go about doing that. Certainly, I'm always up for a, I punished my PC story because they did something stupid. That's always a fun segment. We should add that one, actually. <laughs> maybe not every time, but maybe now and then. Daedra, your last thoughts to close us out. Oh, I'm, I'm with you uh, 100%. I'm glad we went over surprise because now... Like what Nathan was saying earlier, too, I, surprise can really be used to uh, make people panic and like uh, get them on edge. So I feel like that could be a very important narrative tool, even if you if you maybe feel like the PCs, all, all your players are breezing through the campaign a little bit too much. Get, give them something to sweat about. That's a good idea. Awesome. All right, Nathan, your thoughts to close us out. Uh, I now really want to use, give my players a magic item that has perfectly, fairly straightforward use cases across the board. And then there's just like a 1% chance of ripping a hole in reality um, and and just tearing tearing the world apart. The idea of a... uh, uh, wand of wonders that is just a small bit of a nuke is is more intriguing to me than it really should be i almost think we need to rebrand this as the evil dm podcast because we've all just agreed to be harsher on our players but 
hopefully that's just I don't know the result of of the topics tonight, but uh, legitimate mustard. Like I love them, but they deserve it. <laughs> yeah, there is some truth. Only if they're they're, they're just being ridiculous. Um, I don't I don't know. But then again, I root for my players. I don't try to kill them. But if they're dumb, I just can't save them, and that's the thing. But oh, anyway, you're the the goal but, of the game is to be a steward for the players' fun. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, close up. You have the final say, legitimate mustard. Well, I'm just thinking now about this, a narrative device that I could use with surprise with an organized low-level enemy and maybe a maybe a, a, a magical item that is pure chaos and just what I can do with it. And I'm very excited about the possibilities that that may lead to. So you're going to take every single section we talked about and punish players with them. Punish is such a strong word. <laughs> it's a narrative device. It's a narrative device. All right, very good. And with that, I think we're going to close up. A, a difficulty to overcome. Absolutely. There you go. Yep. Yep. Make it Shakespearean, right? It's the third act, and they have to they have to hit that turning point. But all right. And with that, with um, the devious look in legitimate mustard's eye about creating a bunch of goblins with wands of wonder who get instant surprise on everyone. Thank you for listening to uh, the very first. Uh, behind the screen OSR DMs podcast and we'll see you uh, next month actually bye everyone goodbye